I'd like to begin tonight's talk with a saying or a text by Marcel Proust, the French writer. He wrote, The real journey of discovery consists not in seeing new landscapes, but in having new eyes. I think we can very much translate this text or this little poem into what we are doing here, what we are practicing. Our spiritual journey is not about having new experiences, but about seeing the experiences that we already do have with new eyes, with the eyes of wisdom and compassion. Now often I think we are fascinated or sometimes even enchanted by the landscapes we travel through if they are nice, if they are the landscapes we, we like, we wished for. At other times we feel averse towards the landscapes if they are not what we expected them to be or if they are not nice to look at or just unpleasant to experience them. And of course with landscapes here I don't mainly mean the outer landscapes but really the landscapes of sounds, of smells, of tastes, but also the inner landscapes of body sensations, of thoughts, images, and emotions. Attracted, fascinated by those we like, we do whatever we can to spend more time maybe in those regions. And we try to sail around or to avoid the boring, the monotonous, or the ones inhabited by wild animals. And again, mainly not the outer wild animals, but our inner wild animals, or demons, as they are sometimes called. Or if we can't bypass them, the unpleasant ones, we complain or we hold our breath, we shut down our eyes, we curse or we accuse those that happen to be around us, or we sink into lethargy and depression. All these different ways, maybe at different times, uh, we have different ways to, to deal with them. And often we are not even aware of how exhausting such a journey is with all these different reactions. A journey where we are sometimes not even able to enjoy and appreciate the pleasant landscapes, the present experiences, inner and outer, or pleasant times. Because our Enjoyment gets stolen by the fear having to leave or by the desire of making more out of it. 
than what it actually is at this very moment. Over time, I think it is unavoidable to realize that we can't control, after all, what emerges in our eyes, in our ears, in our body or in our mind. But we can do something about it, how we look at it, how we view it. And that shift makes a revolutionary difference. So the topic for tonight is these qualities of wisdom and compassion. In the Tibetan tradition, often the image is used that they are like the two wings that a bird needs in order to fly, to fly into freedom, to fly into the big sky, the spaciousness. Of course, they are two separate wings and yet part of the same body, the same being, inseparably connected with each other. Wisdom is part of compassion and compassion is part of wisdom. One model that describes all the various aspects of our practice here is the so-called Eightfold Path, which, as many of you know, of course, consists of three areas. One, the Shila area, the ethical conduct. Another one, the Samadhi part, as it's called in Pali, or the meditative practices. And the Panya part, the wisdom aspects. So tonight I would like to look at this wisdom aspect, at the eyes that see the world, a very crucial point, how we see the world and how we interpret what we see determines then how we act in this world. So this wisdom aspect on one side consists of is sometimes called right understanding or right insight into who we are, into reality as it is, and it replaces delusion. On the other side, it consists of what's called or translated sometimes as right intention of how we are with what we see and how we react with what we see instead of holding on with letting go with a generosity and instead of aversion with kindness and compassion. If we look at our life not just from our ideas, from our hopes, from our fears, But look with more unbiased, more open eyes what we try to do here through the practice, through the awareness, through again and again trying to find this open inner attitude to our experience. With this more open 
eyes, clear eyes, we are much more aware also of the very fleeting, of the very ungraspable nature of all the experiences that we have. The conversation with a dear friend that I was looking for, perhaps for a long time, of course makes me happy and is very fleeting and far too short. Or the view over the snow-covered mountains, which is very apparent now these days here, is or might be very uplifting, at least that's the case for me, and at the same time doesn't fulfill my longing permanently. So in those moments in which we are ready and able to leave things in their innate simplicity, we are also in contact with their ungraspability, their fleetiness, at the same time also with their preciousness. And we also become aware that our experiences and ourself exist interdependently out of causes and conditions. And seeing ourselves and the world more and more from this perspective, there follows quite naturally more an inner attitude that is creating or wants to create more harmony and less struggle. And instead of holding on tightly, there's more often a letting go. Instead of constantly fighting, we meet the unpleasant more often with a sense of compassion and tenderness. Because it's very precious. We know it's, in a way, it's a gift, this very moment. Even those moments that are unpleasant, viewed from those eyes, from those eyes of wisdom, there is still a sense of, of appreciation, even. But as we all know, this takes practice. It's not our habitual, our very natural way to, to be with our experiences, to be with ourselves. So we need to learn to not get entangled in all our interpretations and conclusions about life and then, of course, they're following often very painful mind states or emotions. And in those times in which we are entangled, of course, we need to find a careful interest. What is happening in this very moment? What kind of holding is going on in our mind, in our heart. And some time ago I found to me a rather amusing little anecdote that Mark Twain writes in one of his uh, travel accounts. I don't know exactly how it fits 
to illustrate what I'd like to illustrate, but somehow it does, I think, I hope. Uh, to me, it kind of is a, is a funny example of how sometimes we can also hold on to certain interpretations about life while totally missing life that, that is already happening anyhow in this very moment. So he writes, it was very cold, and if the thermometer would have been longer, we would have frozen to death. <laughs> and I think it's quite often that we are with ourselves or with life, with that, you know, we... we we have a certain idea or a measurement and we totally rely on that. And we suffer from that. We, we get cold even because it says it's cold, so we must be cold. And we, we forget, we miss to actually feel. Is it really true? How, how is it in this very moment? So... In this practice, we learn how we create suffering, how we invent stories about the past, about the future, about the present time, how we constantly comment, how we constantly tell ourselves our lives, how it is, how it should be, how it should never be. We tell stories about other people, of course, in the same way. And many of those stories aren't even funny, but we still keep on telling them somehow. The habit is so, so strong. So through practice over and over, we see or we begin to see more often the difference between our story, our interpretation and what is actually happening in the simplicity of this very moment. Hafiz, uh, probably some of you know, the very uh, quite famous Sufi poet, expresses such a moment of relief, of freedom from all these interpretations in his own quite poetic and unique way, and it's called a strange feather. All the craziness, all the empty plots, all the ghosts and fears, all the grudges and sorrows have now passed. I must have inhaled a strange feather that finally fell out. So we practice letting go instead of holding on, kind care instead of an angry turning away. And we see for ourselves that a deeper happiness emerges from that. Thomas Merton, the well-known Christian monk who died many years ago, who also spent a lot of his monk's life in retreat, in silence. He writes, 
It's in the silence of our imaginations that the barrier between us and the peace of things is melting away. It's in the silence of our imaginations. And I think we could also add of our, uh, you know, of our stories or interpretations, conclusions, that the barrier between us and the peace of things is melting away. So whenever I remain in the inner attitude that this is my personal problem, then I'm stuck in self-pity or in self-blame. But the more I understand the lawful causes of my inner suffering, the more compassion arises for me and for others. It is wisdom, it is this right, this correct understanding that sees that suffering is not an unchangeable thing, a fixed fact, but but that it has the same nature as everything else, every other experience, as do also, or as mist, as fog. It arises out of certain conditions, and we may ask ourselves, who made suffering, or who made the fog, And then, who removed the mist, or who removed suffering? And whenever there is holding and identification and no awareness, there is suffering. Wanting that things, people, nature are different brings problems, tension, entanglement, disappointment. This is just a very... Uh, a lawful thing that is happening. Achan Cha, who was uh, teacher of one of my most important teachers of Achan Sumedo, Achan Cha, a Thai uh, forest monk who also died many years ago, he expressed this wrong view in his very direct way, and I like it very much because it's so uh, outstanding, it's so clear. He said, it is like asking the chicken why it is not a duck. (laughs) And there it's very obvious to us, you know, it's kind of so clear. It's not totally, only totally unrealistic, to ask a chicken why it is not a duck, but it is very cruel to the chicken also. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, here we find it's totally absurd, but that's what we over and over do to ourselves. You know, we ask ourselves, why are we not a duck? And it's really very cruel, you know, because there we see, you know, it's not in its nature. It can never be that way. It's not right. You know, something 
love is missing there. So from this first aspect of wisdom, of this right understanding, arises the other aspect of it, this right intention in the direct seeing, experiencing, feeling that all the experiences, all the wished for, all the ones we wish we would never have to experience them, are fleeting, are very transparent, are ungraspable. And that whenever the mind views them as solid, as personal, and gets lost in reaction, suffering arises. And the second aspect of wisdom begins to dawn. We not only see differently, we also deal with what we see differently. The more we're in contact with how it actually is. Instead of this grasping, there is more, very naturally, a letting go, or sometimes just a letting be, not even a letting go. Just losing our fist is enough. We don't have to throw things away that we hold. And instead of holding, there is generosity. Instead of rejection, there is acceptance, there is kindness, there is care and compassion and understanding. And here they really meet together, these two qualities of wisdom and compassion. They nurture each other, they make each other more, more visible. But also in order to be able to see with different eyes, we already need love and care and interest. We turn towards our life and see how it is. Imprisoned in our likes and defense mechanisms, we are not able to see clearly. Because love is missing, space that allows all things and beings to breathe is missing in those moments. And lost in hopes and fears, we strengthen the illusion of the constancy, constancy of a situation or of a knee pain or an inner mood. And it's the loving care again that brings into the light the transparency and the openness of also this experience. And it is also this care that even allows us to open to that which is difficult to bear. And of course we all know and we all have gone through and perhaps or quite probably we go through more experiences that are difficult to bear. For us. And here again, as somebody once said, it is compassion that makes the unbearable bearable. Sometimes we can do things about it, and I think 
we ought to do, we should do whatever we can to, to alleviate suffering. But once in a while we meet situations, we experience things ourselves or outside where we can't just do something about it. And there it's really just this attitude of, of care, of compassion that does make a difference still, even if we can't change the situation right away. <coughs> so practice calls for a, a very intimate relationship with life, with our inner world, with life as a whole. We are asked to be in contact in a truthful and very real and quite authentic manner with respect and with dignity. And of course we all have our bad times, our weaknesses, we all have nasty thoughts, difficult moments or even days or sometimes weeks. We all have, as there is expression in English, our bad hair days. And when we hang in there, we need, or even more need, a compassionate inner attitude. We need kind eyes that see with what kind of stuff human beings have to deal with. And whenever we can look at it with such eyes, with no blame, something within ourselves softens, becomes more modest in this moment, more simple, perhaps we could also say more human. It's, it's in those moments I feel where the, the conceit of thinking that we are self-reliant being very much gets challenged. It's almost like this kind of arrogance kind of melts away in those moments. And our heart opens for the suffering also of other beings, not just for our own suffering. There is quite a nice text by Leonard Cohen that probably many of you are familiar with, a famous song writer and singer. And he asks us in this text to see the blessings in those moments when we let go of our search or demand of perfection and, and of ideals and when we become real it says ring the bells that still can ring forget your perfect offering there's a crack in everything that's how the light gets in Someone once said, I quite like this picture, that 
To show up with a silk pyjama on a construction site is somehow out of place. <laughs> it keeps one one's distance. And I think life is an ongoing construction site. Because whenever we think that from now on everything remains the way we originally planned it. And sometimes, of course, we have moments where we experience that way. You know, now, finally, that's how it should be. But over time, sometimes quite soon, sometimes a little bit later, things change. Something unpredicted happens. Sometimes we, it's obvious the conditions that made it change, and very often they're not obvious. We, they, they can't be recognized by our senses. Why? You know, now everything was just fine. Why? Why did this change the way it did? So when we are deeply connected with our own difficulties, but can also acknowledge that there are experiences in life that are difficult to bear without someone to be blamed for it, we then also experience that compassion helps to soothe this pain and that aversion makes the difficult even more unbearable. So we get more acquainted with the sources of our suffering, but through that also with the sources of its relief and its ending. And the wish to manifest this wisdom by helping to diminish suffering wherever it manifests gets stronger. There's a text by the Dalai Lama where he says, we are guests on this planet. In the best case, we are here for 80 to 100 years. During this time, we should try to do something good, useful with our life. Try to be at peace with yourself and help others share this peace. When you contribute to the happiness and welfare of others, you will find the true purpose, the true meaning of your life. So in a way, it is rather strange. The root of more suffering lies in the determination to stay close to the very suffering. And the root of the alleviation or the ending of suffering lies in the willingness, the courage, of course, that it also takes to open to the existing suffering. So we train, we, we exercise our heart muscle. I don't think it can really get lost, but it can Atrophy. You say atrophy? That's right. Atrophy. It can recede. It can become less strong. 
the heart can become harder, I think. It can more often be closed down, depending on what kind of seed we sow. Whether we plant more often discontent or resentment, appreciation or kindness or compassion. And I'd like again to read a story that I find quite touching, I like a lot. It's by Father Theophane. And Father Theophane, he was a, a Trappist monk, which means in the, he was monk in the Christian tradition. Also, as I, I've been told, he did some also silent retreats in the Buddhist center of uh, the Inside Meditation Society in the States because he was, his monastery was uh, nearby. And Father Theophane, he, during that time, he also met Dipama, Dipama, who was an Indian woman, a very great, wise, compassionate practitioner, who also uh, visited this very Buddhist center in the States. So they met together, and apparently Father Theophane was quite touched and impressed by uh, this little Indian woman called Dipama, the great practitioner. And after her death, he, he wrote this text. What is your heart like? That's what they wanted to know. They brought in someone who had just died. They proceeded to open up her heart. You wouldn't believe what was in there. You wouldn't believe it. White people, black people, atheists, rich people, poor people, drunkards, prostitutes, priests, politicians, children, judges, baseball players, cranks, uh, which is in, in German, komische Kreuze, and me, even me. How did I get there? Is that what I will be like when I die? When they open my heart, what will they find? There's an anecdote by Suzuki Roshi, a Zen master quite famous who founded, for example, San Francisco Zen Center or Tassahara or Green Gulch Farm that some of you uh, might know. And apparently someone who worked in his kitchen in one of his center went to see uh, Suzuki Roshi in order to complain about other helpers who, according to this guy's view, were too talkative in the kitchen. And Suzuki's answer to that complaint was, if you want a quiet kitchen, calm your own mind. <laughs> so it really means if we don't change, we might not even notice that others did change. So we 
cultivate these qualities among many others, of course, because I think the the fabric that we need in order for wisdom really and compassion to grow, of course, is is a, a, a very lively fabric which consists of many, many other qualities uh, that we, we cultivate and strengthen in ourselves. But in doing that, in cultivating those qualities, by learning, is by learning to stay present. Here on a retreat, in a way, it's also learning to be, stay present outwardly, but much more important, of course, to stay present inwardly. So in a way, when we do what we do here, when we sit, when we walk, all these hours on end here, then we sit and walk in this space between <coughs> expression and repression. In a way, it's like stopping to look <coughs> sorry, stopping to look for answers or for a solution. And often we are searching for solutions, of course. Just one example, perhaps. Sometimes something happens that we don't like, aversion arises in our mind, and habitually we look for a solution of this unpleasant experience. Either we try to fight against the aversion or we try to get rid of the person or the situation that triggered our anger. And here we learn to stay present with the aversion itself. We let go of the thoughts about the aversion We stay or we learn to stay with the raw, the naked quality of aversion, the felt sense of this experience, the non-conceptual energy, perhaps, of it. And we don't try to manipulate the content or the circumstances. And we also bring our attention to the vessel in which this experience happens. We allow the vessel to be spacious, patient, open, which then allows for the empty, transparent or ungraspable nature of aversion to become apparent. And this really is true for all experiences. whether they are pleasant or unpleasant, wanted or unwanted, whenever the vessel, the mind, our heart is narrow, when we are trying to hold on to or we are trying to get rid of its content, be this content aversion or jealousy, be it joy or calm, it very much appears in those moments to be very solid, very permanent, very reliable. Of course, also the pleasant experience seem that way. 
You know, in those moments it seems like, oh, what's the problem? You know, it will stay like that. Finally, I, I have it, I got it. That's how it should stay forever. So it's very much my experience also in this moment, my aversion, my calm. And through that, of course, it doesn't stay there usually. There's a lot of entanglement again happening from that. And here's a true story that Kitty Saro, who used to be a Buddhist monk, and that was his Buddhist monk's name, which he is still uh, carrying, although he uh, he's a lay person now. When he uh, was still a monk, he told me he used to go and visit prisons, actually visit prisoners, not prisons, in prisons, <laughs> and teach meditation to those of them who were interested, and they were and still are quite a number of them very much interested in, in this kind of practice. So he said one time after he had done a guided metta, loving-kindness meditation with these really tough guys, you know, some of them who were in prison, you know, also for, for murder, so after uh, this one of these guided metta loving kindness meditation, one of the the men, quite a big tough guy, he came out and, and uh, talked to him, and he said, "I want you to know that I have no compassion, or you know, loving kindness. If I were to meet that fellow now, I would kill him again." Now. What I found interesting then is the reaction of, of Kitty Sorrow, you know, because he didn't try to, for example, what we might think with reaction was, he didn't try to persuade him of his innate goodness <laughs> or that he too had some kindness trying to, you know, kind of get that, cross that over to this man. But... Rather, what he asked him to do is he asked him whether he could just listen to his conviction that I am someone who has no compassion. I am someone who has no compassion. I am someone who has no compassion. And I find that a very helpful and very wise meditation instruction. Now, can we simply listen to our convictions, to our stories we tell ourselves over and over, our fears, our hopes, our resistances, our clutches, or our holding on, instead of, again, also there, getting into a fight, trying to get rid of it, or feeling ashamed, or hiding away, or whatever, or feeling depressed. Can we just listen to all those inner voices? And I think if we do that, we become aware again of a transparency, of an openness 
within ourselves. And my hope changes into just hope, or my fear changes into just fear, or my joy into just joy, and my suffering into just suffering. And there's a sense of universality in those moments. Our seemingly separate special self experiences itself as part of a whole, of a big picture. And instead of being fascinated or disgusted by our experience that we sometimes are, there's more often a resting in this open, not fixated space of awareness. And wisdom and compassion can manifest. So our practice is about such kind of seeing, such kind of eyes, and about a body, a mouth, words, hands, legs, a heart, that embody this seeing, this view, and put it into action from there. So I'd like to close with a poem by Bhikshu Heng Chan. And just before I'd like to explain, he uses the word the world here in his poem. And when he uses the word the world, he talks about the world of entanglements, the mind imprisoned by aversion, greed, and delusion. I think that's important to, to, to see or to hear it in that way. Life is truly a dream. All of its troubles I alone create. When I stop creating, the trouble stops. With a single mind, with an unbounded heart, we can wake up to the wonderful existence within true emptiness that we are in the middle of right now. When all the world ceases to exist, only the wonderful remains. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.